Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to part two of My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens and my guest, Danny Baker. Now, if you've already listened to part one, you'll know that when you left us, Danny and I were heading towards Niagara Falls in a small boat and the engine had failed. Or something equally exciting. So let's find out what happens next, or at least the rest of the things that Danny wants to put in his time capsule. See you on the other side. And we're back. <laughs> Welcome to part two. Exactly. Uh, so there oh, it is. Brilliant. Uh, Danny, I looked up the book of nonsense. Yes. Edited by R.L. Green. That's what you said, isn't it? That's it, yes. Yeah, it yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, I looked it up. I couldn't find it. I've, do you know what I did find? And I thought you might what? be interested in it. If you if you like it, I'm going to buy it for you. It's called, oh, it's called The up. Tales of Make-Believe, edited by R.L. Green. No. And it's illustrated by Harry Tootle. Oh, Tootle Tootle. Some say Tuttle. <laughs> <laughs> or is that Tootle Tuttle? I don't, so I don't know. Uh, but no, that's the actually one I'm talking yeah. about. And it, it's fairly common around. It's got this, some beautiful, beautiful colour plates in it. There's every single sort of character from nonsense. You can oh, see the uh, yeah. aged Uncle Ali, the walrus and the carpenter. You can see uh, uh, the Jabberwocky, yeah. Straw Peter. You can see Alan the Pussycat. Everyone is in there. And uh, and the beautiful, beautiful book. But there's nothing like the content. It's just every single thing you, you ever wanted to be mesmerised and made to feel wonder with. Yeah, I was um, tempted to buy it. Well, I'm going to buy it for my grandchildren. You, you must. Nobody I knew read that book. Nobody I knew got it. No. But if you do, you think, oh, it's it, it really is. It, it, it's like literal LSD. I mean, literal. <laughs> All my life I've adored it. I picked it up. I think when I got my daughter's one, it was only about 15 quid. Uh, um, dust jacket and everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's a school teacher and she takes it to school. And whenever she just goes, does, throws that little dog leg, they find out that, you know, J.K. Rowling only hints at what you can make up. And certainly between... You know, in the in the nineteenth century, they were just they were all over it, as you know. Yeah. But the little little riddles and stuff at the end, 
this story. I don't remember this. Augustus, who would not eat any soup. I do. And gets as thin as that. I mean, that always absolutely terrifies kids. But uh, take this nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. Look at him. The fourth day's come. He scarcely weighs a sugar plum. He's like a little bit of thread. And on the fifth day, he was dead. Now, you know. You <laughs> no just, holding back. But, you know, that, that goes long before the word dark and all that. It's just like, yeah. 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 There you go. <laughs> I know. That'll teach uh, you. <laughs> well, I hope you can sort a copy, but it um, uh, it's certainly um, a absolute wonder that spun me off into everything I do now. Well, of course, we both know that you never know where that sort of inspiration for your life is going to come from. There's no. something that's going to push you down a path that you, no. nobody else is pushing you down. Because when when you ever say to people, you know, I never planned this or whatever, that, that, that I tend to think that maybe most people are ruthless and warriors, but if you're not, and it does happen that way. And it's yes, of course, it's extremely fortunate, but also you have to have a, a little bit of a gumption as a word straight out of a, a <laughs> primary school, usually a gumption. And you have to build of that. And it worked out extraordinarily well for me. I remember when I used to get asked to go to um, schools, and so in my, my old school, although it's it pretty, it's turned into flats, one of the first schools to be turned into flats, West Greenwich, which is the top of Deptford High Street, but they called it West Greenwich, which mm. I always thought was rather grand. <laughs> and, uh, but um, they say, could you come back, you know, and tell people if they work hard and, you know, keep at it and keep trying. I, had to, I always had to turn around and say, I can't say that because I never have. <laughs> Mine has been literally some kind of a, a pinball machine, the gods thought, let's see what happens to him. And straight from school to, you know, serving Elton John on my third day in the record shop, et cetera, et cetera, and, and on and on and on yeah. through the punk rock kid, which happened by such Byzantine roots. At the end of the game, but it, there are people think you're just polishing up an otherwise cloak and dagger CV, but it isn't. I, I didn't have an agent until 1989. <laughs> I was, I was, honestly, I've done television series, I've done everything, and it's just a, I kind of went skint around 1989. And then they said, have you ever thought about radio? And they were the first people to say that. Um, and I said, not really. I don't, as I said, yes, I don't listen to the radio. So, and that was completely fortuitous. Mm. I think life is, though. I think people who oh, pretend totally, that they yeah. plan their life. The only person I've ever come across who told me the plan of his life and then did it was Patrick Marber, the writer. Oh, who, yeah. And when he was very young, he said, this is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And he basically followed exactly what he told me years I, I, and years I, ago. I mean, you know, God bless Patrick Marber, but I would think that it would, it would be kind of... Um, that's a little antiseptic. Yeah. But to know what you're going to do, who, who would want that? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it certainly, my life, I wouldn't have been presumed. Uh, I had literally no idea. My, my old man was always very, very encouraging, not in terms of, you know, he need, no one in my family did anything. When we were doing the Sniffing Glue fanzine, which, mm. again, is, is preposterous. Kid, I was at school <laughs> when Mark Perry started it, and when he was working in a bank, but my sister had a typewriter. So uh, <laughs> we followed that. Uh, but my old man said, how's the typing going, boy? Never writing, always typing. Yeah. Uh, and equally, when I said I wanted to leave school at 14, that was the brightest in a year at school, which wasn't that much of a boast when you consider the second brightest went on to be a roadie for Richie Blackmore's rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was just a, you know, comprehensive at the top of Deptford High Street. Yeah. I mean, I left there at 14. The last year you could leave at 14. Uh, yeah, I know. 14. Mm. Sounds Victorian, but you could. Yeah. 72 was the last year before it went up that summer to 15. Yeah. Uh, I remember it happening. I remember kids being really annoyed because they wanted to go and work in their dad's garage. There you go. People, uh, Russell Anderson was the very first to leave. He didn't even wait for the Easter holidays, which is when I went because I was, booked in a record shop and uh but my old man said oh it wasn't like that then you know oh you stay on get a good job nothing just get a job as long as you put a fiber on the table on friday night he said you can do what you want yeah and don't sign the, the biggest sin was uh, signing on 
and don't you sign on. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Uh, it wouldn't. He, he, he lived very much under the radar in every kind of way. Once they've got, it's not because he thought any particular shame in it. He just thought once you've got a number and you're, they know who you are. Know, that was his, his thinking. <laughs> you go down there and everybody will watch you to send your places, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't have that. Uh-huh. So I went straight from school into a record shop. Uh, but that was his philosophy was always don't have a bank account, don't have anything, don't exist within any kind of framework. That was, <laughs> honestly, he, he was genuinely like that. And uh, he was incredibly good with money for all of us. Yeah. Knock it out. You're like me. Say, you're like me, boy. You're a forager. You'll always be able to get hold of a few quid. Fantastic. That's what you always told us. Yeah. That's lovely. And, uh, so they were tremendously encouraging. In, not encouraging. It's, it, it, it just, you just did it. Yeah. I didn't encourage it to do anything. That, that's something I think. That uh, has been lost, up, lost, but it certainly doesn't make sense to people now. Nobody ever had a career, like we just said there. Mm. The careers wasn't a word. You, you <laughs> wouldn't have got jobs, but such was the world then. If you didn't like that job, you got another job. Yeah. You know, and people say, oh, well, boomers, it was easy for you. But it actually wasn't. It was just this, I think, intentional uh, emphasis that's put on work. And, you know, and then people have got no option now. Yeah. That's not coincidental. But then it, 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 I, I, I genuinely to this day, to this day, and I still see my mates when I go to Millwall, I don't know what they used to do for a living. I genuinely don't. No. I don't know. You know, when, when you say this, is Bill still working at the, you know, I go, I don't know. It just wasn't the thing. You, you, you did a job and you come home mm. and you went out. Yeah. And he didn't talk about it. No, and there was none of this working you up a ladder or what I'll be doing in five years or what I plan to do. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a mundane and, and obvious how you go to work. There was no office work. I mean, nobody, nobody I never knew worked in offices, which is, <laughs> but, which is all you've got now. I mean, to be absolutely honest, yeah. I mean, we, as you know, around in Bermondsey, there, there was factories everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned uh, pig frames and shuttleworths. And the docks. And the docks. But there was Morins, which made them. Um, Vending machines, Sarsons vinegar, mm-hmm. uh, the railway arches, which had nefarious businesses going in, in all of them. All sorts of things. My Uncle Bill, the old bloke who lived next door to us when we lived in Eildon Road, he worked in some sort of metal factory. That's all I remember. Yep. I, it was it was just down the road. He came back for lunch. That was called the Metal Box Factory. Ah, right, yeah. That's what it was called. The Metal, I know if, metal Box would be, uh, uh, I've got to start a Metal Box mm. Saturday. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Metal Box was a big employer, but that's all it was called, right. the Metal Box. <laughs> <laughs> you remind me, I've not thought about that for 50-odd years. But mates, mates of mine would ever get a job on site, you know, pulling cable or something. But a lot of them would say, I'm doing six weeks at the Metal Box. Mm. Okay, and that was it. You didn't need to know anything more about what they did, who they, they might tell you that individuals they worked with. But this idea of a, a career, yeah, and nobody I knew, nobody in my family and nobody I knew owned a house. No. We all lived in flats, and as I said yesterday, and it was wonderful. It was terrific, mm. this demonization and kind of um, special pleading now on part of the council estates and people, they, they shrink from it when you say council estates, if you're trying to prove something, yeah. you know, but the class thing we could get into, which is mm-hmm. too big. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, when they, but it, it, that was it. And I'm afraid in, if you look at it like that and like people don this, you know, proletarian cloak, I was, I, I'm impeccable. I did tweet last night, funny enough, because somebody was talking about it. To be working class, you can't inherit it from grandparents because they always say that. People used to patronise the hell out of me. Probably still do. <laughs> oh, my My granddad was a miner. Oh, you, great. Yeah, you, I know, but you went to Cambridge, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is fine. That's all good too. But they'll always try and it's it's almost like, you know, some of my best friends are, are black, you know, that kind of thing. They'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, uh, my uncle used to uh, work in the markets. Okay, we'll give you your uncle, you know. Yes. Uh, but you can't inherit working class. You cannot 
shedding. No. No matter what happens after that, people say to me, you live in a big house on Blackheath. I do. Ah. I do. And so would anyone, you know. Any working class person had the money, yeah. Yeah. The idea that, oh, no, you should stay down, you know, down in Deptford eating cockles, which actually is not a bad life. <laughs> but um, uh, but that that kind of thing, it's a, it's a, it, how dare yeah, you? It's weird, isn't it? How dare you? It's like meeting some of the good acts and saying, oh, I bet you've got a massive house in the country. And they say, no, I haven't. <laughs> but but if, you, if, you, if you're working class, and both of us, you more than me, mm. have shed a natural accent. I hear old recordings of me, yeah. man, alive. Mm. Oh, my God, I make Harry Fowler sound like Prince Charles. <laughs> Harry Fowler reference everyone. Yes, uh, people can Google. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you lose that, but you never never lose. I mean, uh, until I was 20, I lived in Debenhams Road, the flats, yeah. uh, which is fine. Yeah, my uncle, I used to turn up, I used to walk across Southwark Park at 6 o'clock in the morning, having got the train from Orpington, and uh, and I'd help my uncle load his van. Climb over the gates. Climb over the gates, walk through the park in the dark. People uh, to um, uh, Bermondsey's. A lot of Birmingham and Rotherhive are built around Southwark Park. Yeah. And uh, they still lock the gates of it. Yes. Uh, at, at random hours. And to walk around it, it's a long way. It's a real long circumnavigation mm. down Jamaica Road and, and, you know, up Lower Road, then down Rotherhive. If you, all the way around. Or you can get over the gates. Over the gates, of course. The That's what I did. But we, I used to go across, climb over the other gates, and then go and help my yeah. uncle load I his know. van. And we would drive to East Street Market where he sold leather coats. Did he? Yeah. Did he? You know, East Lane, as it's known colloquially, that, that I'm just coming to that, funnily enough, ah. in, in my next choice. Strangely, I am. Uh, but getting over the gates one night, because when you come out the pubs, and all the good ones tended to be up the other end of Jamaica Road, the Lilliput Hall and places like this. My first DJ job in the Lilliput Hall. Didn't go well. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, so coming back, we'd all climb over the park gates at night and walk across. And we came out um, in a road called Hawkston Road at the other end, at the big gates. And we was climbing over, and there was a police car sitting there with a light on. Now, you know, a bunch of... 16-year-olds getting over the gate, so what? Mm. And uh, he got out and he came over and said, where are you lot been? And we went, uh, been at the pub. Why are you getting in the park? He said, a, a shortcut. The park's <laughs> shut. You're trespassing. He gave us all of this. And we kind of, all right, mate. And he said, uh, so uh, take your pockets, mate. Let's turn our pockets out. And we wow. had tuppence eight in, honestly. And it was me and uh, Tom and Pete. There was only three of us. And uh, he went, go on in, Go. And as I turned around, he kicked me so hard up the ass. He's literally his toe, <laughs> the toe punt went so hard oh. at the base of my spine. I'm sure it, the, the, the top of my spine bumped it out the top of my skull and I had a little bump. And honestly, I lifted off the ground. I lifted <laughs> off the ground and I just kept walking. And I just threw clenched teeth. They said, what's the matter? I said, he just kicked me right up the ass. Now, my two mates thought that was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> uh, and that's the thing you can take, you know, you can say, well, that's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. I often talk about being kind at, at school and stuff, not in a try to say, oh, it was all wonderful. I don't know. Thank no. God, you know, my kids are never. Been. I was kind a few times, but I said, but there's no denying, as, as atrocious as it is and as reprehensible, and thank God we've turned our back on it, nothing was funnier than seeing your mate get kind. <laughs> <laughs> it, was. it was. I know it's a terrible thing, but this is the side you never hear. <laughs> I saw mates of mine get kind. Uh, the first time I was ever kind. It was uh, my great mate, Lenny Byer. I used to sit next to Lenny. He lived on the Peeps Estate in Deptford. And uh, I was in the second year or something. And I used to do this uh, routine on the stage about um, uh, the absolute brilliant uh, way that kids would eat 
suites in class. Yeah, the teacher would be up at the front uh, <laughs> looking to say, Mr. Kistasami doing geography. And he'd have his back to the class drawing some kind of isthmus on the board. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and kids, while focusing straight on the, the blackboard, would, could slide a hand into their pocket. And remember, the sweets would be wrapped like in, in proper wrapped sweets. And blah, blah, blah. And they would keep their eyes intently on him while under the desk, they could unwrap these things very slowly, mm. right? And then what you do, you unwrap it, you put it in one hand and you do the cough and drop, if you forgive the phrase. <laughs> you run your hand over your mouth while you go, <clears throat> and pop it in your mouth. And then you've got the sweet in your mouth. But <laughs> kids become so attuned to the slightest crackle of a sweet wrapping paper, they can hear it, right? Yeah. So I was sitting I was sitting in class now, my hands below, below the desk, and I just unwrapped this thing. And there's that kind of glazed look you can tell when another kid is saying, he's unwrapping a sweet under the table. Right? So <laughs> I did this and I heard, I got, no, this is Lenny. He's the next one down. There's a kid here, but then there was Lenny there. I got, his best mate calls me Baker. I got, oh, give me sweet. No, give me sweet. I said, no, no. We're both looking straight here. Blah, 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 you know. <laughs> Loom pits and all of this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And get me swing. So I've dug in my pocket and under the table while still looking straight at it, I've passed this kid and he's took it here again, still looking straight at the hand over like a relay race. He's took that <laughs> and he's looked at me and I've gone, <clears throat> I'm putting this in my mouth like this. And he put his hand up and said, Sir, Baker's eating a sweet sauce. <laughs> and I looked at him. And the teacher turns white and said, Baker's eating a sweet sir. And, and he said, Are you Baker? And I said, Sure. He said, come out here, and I had to walk up the aisle oh. to the bin at the front of the class, and you can drop anything, a rainbow drop in a bin. It makes that noise if you've been called <laughs> contraband. Bang, as I dropped this, you know, whatever it was, uh, into the hard bowl sweet into the bin. Stick out your hand. He went, whack, and then this hand, whack. Go and sit down. And as I went back past Lenny, he just pulled the biggest face in the world and went, <laughs> and you had to think, well, fair enough. And over the mm. next couple of years, we would try to get each other caned. I won't carry on, but it was on the top of a bus, um, on top of the uh, number one or 47 up to the top of Depot High Street. And uh, I said, uh, Len, you've got your apron, because if you've got your apron, because as you know, in working class schools, the emphasis was on woodwork and metalwork. Mm -hmm. You wonder why, right? <laughs> so uh, we didn't do languages. We didn't do any sciences even. We really didn't. We really, really <laughs> oh, didn't. Wow. No, we never had that. We had a science laboratory, but we never hired a teacher. Never once did we do science, <laughs> never once did we do languages, but plenty of woodwork, metalwork, and sport. Mm. Couldn't have loved it more, by the way. Couldn't I? I adored every single day I was at school. And uh, Len, well, you, you've got your apron, because forgetting your apron was the number one crime. And so uh, Lenny had a, a, a like those briefcases you used to have, even at our school. You had, and he opened up, and yeah, I said, Show us it a minute, I'll show you something. And he went, hey, I said, I'll show you something. And he said, well, I said, I'm going to show you something, right? So it changes everything. And he handed me this rolled up apron. And as he handed to me, I'd already opened the window on the bus. We're sitting upstairs. I just threw it out the window. Right? <laughs> and we only had one stop. The guy went, no, no. Right? And we're hammering down raining. No. And we got off. And, of course, I went straight in. And I said, so I don't mean Bart's got his ape. Got him caned for that. Now, I'm, I'm getting, there's, there's more to this. But all I wanted to say was that things are now looked back and lamented uh, and sort of said, it wasn't that terrible. But, but people are quite durable, and we didn't think at the time we were terrible victims of and, and what no, we can do. No. Not like army life. You do look back and think, that was funny. That was a terrible thing to do. Terrible. But it was, it was no more unusual 
than anything else, you no. know. I remember at school, people wore caning as a badge of pride, really. The people who got caned the most. You know, and um, there was incidents where I know teachers used to single out some of the better-looking kids to take it on the buttocks, and we know uh, that. Anyway, but that's that's something else. Yeah, that's strange something else. teachers. And we had some very it, strange it, teachers. It, oh, no, there is, there is that. But we had, some, we had some... Is that your phone? Yeah. What's going Answer on? It. Nobody ever rings my home phone. There it I, is. I it's, it's, the, it's the school board asking why you're on a school. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly There's no one else in, so I'll let it go. You, you know what? How we know you and I are of a certain generation. You got a landline. I got a landline. Yeah. <laughs> it's still going. Answer it. Yeah. Could be a Hang job. On. I'm going to turn it off. Hang it on. could be a job. It's gone. They are the oh, moment I moved. It's your agent saying, Mike, where were you this morning? Two years in Emmerdale. Two years, beautiful, lovely role. <laughs> please, beautiful. please, please. <laughs> Danny, no. Two years in Emmerdale. Give over. <laughs> I know, I know. You, you, get, you get less for mugging old ladies, I know. But, uh, uh, but uh, uh, anyway, I'll be going like yesterday, drifting in. There's a whole corporal punishment thing there. And I don't want to make a case for it. I'm just saying the side you never hear is, we didn't, like in the workhouse scenes in Oliver, all cower as one of our poor friends had to go up to the front. Mm. We used to think it was the funniest thing. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't wait to get in the playground sometimes. Uh, Did you hear? Hutchinson got six this morning. <laughs> 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 I know, and you're going to see him, you go and laugh. I'm sorry, but that is a, a definite working class resilience. It's not like Lindsay Anderson's if all the time. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so should we, the, the next one I've got. Yes. Which I said I'd Let's move on to item number three. What have we done? We did the smell of E.T. Absolutely. The ride in Florida at the Universal Studios. The smell of a ride in Florida. Yeah. And we've got the book of nonsense, mm. which uh, led on to absolutely everything else. <laughs> and the other one is um, it's going to be Newport Court. 1972. Newport Court is a small alleyway, well, small road, very small, very small street that leads between Charing Cross Road and Chinatown in you know Soho yeah. West End. So if you go, if you come out Leicester Square Tube, walk up Charing Cross Road, yeah. it's about the first on the left. Now it's as anodyne as anywhere else around there. Mm. You know, it's a pedestrianised zone, and, you walk, and like everything else, it's coffee shops. I think there's a, a couple of haute couture places. It used to be the centre, the heartbeat of secondhand records. Uh. In 1972, I've been asked a few times, you know, if you had a time machine, where would you go back to? And, and even though you flirt with 1666 to see <laughs> the plague hand over to the fire and various other things, it's always Newport Court, 1972. I used to finish school and the number one bus, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the number one bus used to run from Catford all the way into the West End, to Marlebone, and it would go past my house. But if I stayed on it for another 15 minutes, you're in the West End, mm. and it used to stop at Newport Court. And if I had, uh, my dad used to get records out of the docks along, along with other things. For years, he would bring home records that were exporting right, from the yeah. CBS labels. So I used to go over Petticoat Lane when I was 11 and 12 and sell them, and I had to bring half the money back to him, and the rest I'd spend on records. That's how my <laughs> absolute lifelong addiction started with uh, vinyl. Mm. And you catch me at the moment at a strange time, as you can see behind me, there's towering yeah. shelves, and it goes off in that direction. I'm in the process of getting rid of them all. No. Yeah, yeah, my, my record collection, which is quite famous. Uh, yeah, I think I had to do with turning 65 and all this useless beauty. Mm. And um, my son collects records, and he's taken what he wants out of this, but it's, it's, it just... I don't know. People say, no, you can't, you won't. I don't play them much anymore. The days when mates used to come around, we go, and they'd all say, oh, I used to have this. And there's virtually every record released in the 1970s here. Uh, some are worth a great deal of money. But as you said, you're not a sentimental man. No, no. And I just think, you know what? Um, uh, I'm 65. When did 67? 
And, and, and I'm not certainly on my last legs or anything like it. Mm. But equally, I just, I've always thought life should have a third act. I've been saying this for ages. And when I tried to retire at 60, I probably should have done. But the tour has started. Yeah. And as I say, that June the 22nd next year, that will be it. Because you've got to have a third act. You know, you can't just let, let things dribble away. Mm. And one of them will be, if I had to sell these records for uh, tax reasons or whatever it is, or you was skin, that would be heartbreaking. Yeah. But to sell them, when Wendy and I are, you know, sitting on a beach in Bermuda, and I think, yep, my ten years after I'm going to pay for this, that that, <laughs> that, 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 that seems that seems a life well spent. Uh, so I'm in touch with a couple of auction houses to do that. But it all began. And when we dad getting records out the docks, you could knock these out for us, boy. He had a girdle on, made of vinyl when he came in. He'd open his coat and there'd be all these <laughs> records stuck around his waist. You know, people talk about dockers walking out with stuff, which was absolutely true. They did. They levied uh, a certain export tax on everything. <laughs> and uh, our house would be full of everything, and little noddy dogs for the back of the car. To... Yeah. You'll know Jimmy Mulville. You know Jimmy. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy told me a story about his dad working on the docks up in Liverpool and saying there was a bloke who every night would come out with a wheelbarrow with a tarpaulin over it. And yeah. they would say, oi, oi, oi. And they'd stop and they'd pull the tarpaulin back and there's nothing there. And just every night he'd be coming out this, and they'd say, yep. I, he's, and we know he's nicking something. What's he nicking? He was nicking wheelbarrows. <laughs> That's perfect. We did the one where Berlin and say, there's, there's a ton of Docker stories, some apocryphal, not all. But my old man uh, used to bring home the records. Uh, they, but just before we leave that, they were exporting shoes through where he used to uh, work. He worked in the Millwall docks and ended up down at Tilbury, but most of his life was in the uh, West India or the Millwall docks. Mm. And um, they were exporting shoes. And in the end, they were, they were losing so many shoes that they started exporting the right shoe out of London and the left shoes out of Hull. That's absolutely <laughs> true. But doctors used to get in touch and they'd meet up halfway down the motorway and say, what's that? Was it like Italian broke? No, I give us one. That's right. That's one pair. They would meet up along the motorway. All of that. <laughs> So the records, um, and and I had, I had my brother had records, but I had about when I was about thirteen, I must have had about fifty records because all I would do, my old man was very good with, you know, I never had pocket money. Do you want that boy? I'll go on. If, if he'd done well at the races and stuff, certainly. Yeah. But three times a week, I would go on my own to Newport Court, and I picked nineteen seventy two because that's peak time. I think me selling records the year I left school. But in that first part, and I would get the number one bus, and in my mind, it's always kind of getting dark at about four o'clock, quarter past four. <laughs> and I'd go all the way up there, and I'd get off, and Newport caught this little, say, little, little tiny conduit into Chinatown, had about 12 shops, but they were all tumbled down, and at least seven of those were second-hand record shops because mm-hmm. they were on the edge of where all the record companies were. And as I later found out, the NME journalists used to fund their drinking habits by going around record companies you know, and saying, can I look in the cupboard, which meant all their releases. <laughs> you take out handfuls of them, go straight down to Cheapo Cheapo in Berwick Market and sell them for cash and go into the pub. Yeah. I did that all the time at the NME. But at this age, I would take four or five albums my dad had got or I'd bought that I didn't like anymore all the way to Newport Court and spend a good hour, hour and a half. I say to my mum, I'll be late in between, mum. I'm going up the West End. And uh, I would just, and I would smell, uh, the, the, the ones that you had to go downstairs to, there was a shop that sold kind of hippie clothing. There had lots of, I can see loads of uh, the scarves hanging down now and it had patchouli burning over here. But there was a stairway at the back and you go down this stairway that like you had to hang up, it was virtually vertical mm. into the basement where there was just this old head, bearded head sitting there was surrounded by boxes and boxes of records. And he knew me. <laughs> oh, hello, what you got? And I'd say, uh, these. And he'd go, um, 
I can give you a four pound cash for these, or you can take a, a seven quid in exchange. Always exchange, and records were about a pound each. Yeah. And I would just pour over everyone, take them out, read in the back, you know, and other old heads around me, my shoulder. And that to me is is bliss. That's Eden for me. <laughs> and there was about four or five others down that way as well. And they sold bootleg records, the illegal bootleg records. And then I would get the bus all the way home. Mm. If I didn't go there, I would go to Trident Studios to try to see David Bowie. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because I knew he recorded in Trident Studios. And if Bernard Sibley came with me, we were both very early adopters of David Bowie. And uh, just around the man who sold the world-ish time, just hunky-dory time. So he was an early adopter of him. Mm. Uh, so that's 71. And we knew it was Trident Studios. So we, the number one bus was equally handy for that. So we'd get off on the stand outside Trident Studios. Now, in the playground, I was known amongst all of like in way out music. There's a few of us, me and Bernard and stuff. And um, uh, sometimes they would say, Oi, Baker, who's that weirdo you like? That would be David Bowie, right? <laughs> and I'd say, uh, Oh, because that doesn't narrow it down, what weirdo. Which, no, which they're all pretty weird, yeah. You know, the one where, where's the, the dress or whatever it was. Because I, <laughs> I, I had and still have the original man who sold the world, uh, bought in Newport Court, hand to God, swear to God, £1.50 that cost, oh. which was expensive. Anyway, uh, so uh, it was that weirdo. I said, we just saw him. He was over the road. He was waiting outside the chip shop. All right, lads. Thank you very much indeed. About a week later, they'd say, Baker, you missed him again. He was uh, with another load of weirdos. They was all smoking, sitting on the pavement, waiting for a bus. I said, oh, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you very much. Run, you'll see him. No, boys, I'm not running. Back to Trident Studios. Uh, another week later, Baker, you missed him again. He was <laughs> in the baker shop. He's queuing up to get a roll. Okay. Now, 40 years later, a book came out called David Bowie, 47 to 74, The London Years, right? Mm. And it's the most exhaustive. It's a brilliant book, but it's the most exhaustive day by day. <laughs> every bus ticket you ever had. It shows that between 1969 and 1973, his rehearsal studios were 100 yards away from our school at the oh, bottom of Blackheath no. Hill, beneath a chemist shop, yet Underhill Studios. And it really was him. <laughs> and I never used to, and we used to get on the bus and stand outside Trident Studios while we were going away from where he actually was. Oh. And it's, I didn't find that out until about six years ago. This book came out and it said, you know, um, uh, August 1971, Bowie goes back to Underhill Studios to start rehearsals for what would become the Ziggy Stardust oh, or whatever God. it is. And my mates used to say he's over there. Of course he was buying chips. In yeah. my mind, what would David Bowie be doing queuing up for a pasty? <laughs> he obviously was, or waiting for the bus back to Beckenham where he lived. Yeah. And it was that. And I used to say, yeah, all right. I said, go around, you'll see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Bernie just never saw him at Trident Studios, but outside our school on the other side of the road, that was where Bowie was. Amazing. So anyway, all of this is wrapped up in Newport Corp, which led on to the records, which led on to, you know, the, the punk fan, to me getting a job in the record shop, mm. which was in Dean Street then, and went to South Moulton Street after that one-stop records, where within two weeks after leaving school, I'm knocking around with Alton John and Rod Stewart and that, because they were customers there. And so that, that's not just fortuitous. That's the most extraordinary thing. Yeah. Then the record shop, a very complicated and, and also most cosmic thing that happened in the record shop, led on to me being in, uh, into, involved with punk rock. Mm. If you hear the chance that led on to that, that led on to the NME. While we was being punk rockers, uh, because I can talk and stuff, television thought we were the ones. They couldn't get hold of the Sex Pistols, <laughs> but they said, oh, they, 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 they could you do that fanzine which was done originally by Mark for about four issues in his bedroom. Then he left the bank and then we would Xerox it and yeah. sell it around the West End and that things. And then, then we, we were selling like 20,000. We became, because we've got the jump on the NME and of all course. of this, we became in ourselves quite well known. 
And one of them was Janice Free Porter who came and did a whole thing. But they thought he's good, or she did. Mm-hmm. And Janet was the one who said, Do you want to? I'm sitting, I was because the enemy asked me to join because I thought I'd, I'd be good for, you know, their kudos. We've got that punk kid. <laughs> yeah. But I couldn't join. I was too much in awe of it. I said, I can't. I can't join the idiot. No. And Tony Parsons, who worked for the enemy at the time, said, Go on, join it. And he was on the road. I'll never forget because uh, Mark finished sniffing glue at Ep- uh, number 12. He said, it's, it, we've sold out. And I thought, no, we can keep doing this. No, Mark, was, <laughs> he, he, he remained very true to the spirit of it. I desperately wanted to carry it on. 20,000 copies a week. You go, yes, please. We didn't make a, a shilling, not a tanner. Wow. Not a tanner out of it. We did have 90 pounds in um, what would pass for the corporate bank account. We were kind of owned at the time by Miles Copeland. <laughs> I did a television show years ago called The Rebellious Jukebox. Oh, with, I remember that. Yeah, Godly and Cream. Yeah. They were so off their faces the whole time. We, we filmed were about they? 700 hours of material. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was brilliant fun. Wow. But I was doing a sketch with Meatloaf, and he, he was wow. he was said, he said, hey, I got a great idea. What if I have this fuck-off great big 10-gallon hat, big fucking thing? He said, hey, I wear it. It'd be fucking brilliant. And everybody went, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, we were all thinking, why? <laughs> and Miles Copeland was at the back of the studio. He said, yeah, I'll get it. And we went, okay. And he came back two days later and he'd bought it in Dallas. He'd been on Concord. No. Flew over there and flew back. For a cowboy hat. Had a cowboy hat, but then we'd cut it. <laughs> <laughs> I went on Concord. Uh, Did you? I went, uh, yeah, I went on Concord to New York, um, of course, in New York. And uh, I went with Chris Evans and uh, we all went on uh, Concord. And Wendy came and that we went to New York. And within, as you know, you took off at. Uh, I think we took off like at nine o'clock mm-hmm. and you're in New York at 10.30 their time and you'd only been on the plane two and a half hours. It just, incredible. you know, it's one of the great inventions. It was just extraordinary. Anyway, we went, we walked in, we was in a hotel down in Mercer Street and we came out there and on the other side of the road as we came out the hotel was uh, Damon Hill, the motor racing driver. Now I've got a connection with him through my brother-in-law who knows him and uh, Chris was there and he kind of looked over and saw Chris and me and we crossed over and he was doing David Letterman's show. Mm. Uh, and he said, what, what are you doing? So we've only just got into town. And he said, yeah. I said, we've come, if you don't mind, on Concord. I said, you've been on Concord, Damon? He went, no. I said, oh, I said, honestly, I said, it, it, you know, on a plane, you can never feel like the speed. I said, as soon as we got over the channel, they've got this thing at the front, this display showing one miles an hour, mm. and you jump to the speed of sound. I said, and you literally feel it, and it pushes you back in the chair. I said, and you've got this kind of, gym. and my wife nudged me. She went, you're telling Damon Hill what it's like to accelerate then. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine such a thing, Damon? Can you can imagine you possibly such a thing? Am- anyway, can just tell me, so Snipping Blue was um, because uh, there was lots of corporate sniffing and we wouldn't take any ads at first. And when it did, Mark said, that's it. We've sold out. We mustn't do this. And, and he closed it down, which is fine. Mm. But I thought, what am I going to do next? And I was going to see Blondie and Television for Sniffing Blue for the last issue in a van with a few other journalists, if quotation marks around it. And one was Tony Parsons, the NME. He said, what are you going to do when it comes? I said, I don't know. And he said, why don't you come and write for the NME? And I said, that, that to me was like having my bluff called. Yeah. I said, I would be reading the NME. It was, you know, that was it for me. I couldn't write No, I knew the writers' names. I thought I knew what they lived like. And, mm. you know, going to New York every week to do bands and all that. No. He said, well, 
I'll tell you what, we need um, a receptionist. That's how I started. I said, what? He said, we get a lot of nutcases come up the enemy yeah. looking for, you know, Freddie Mercury and that. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, we always have a, a male receptionist. Do you want? And that's how I started at the enemy, you see. And then after like six months, I was spending more time out on the road with bands and the two women I worked with, I had to say, I'll better join the staff. And I yeah. did. Now, how again, that's how I, was, and I joined the enemy. And then Janet's reporter rings up, remembering me from the punk rock thing, said, I'm starting a new youth program called 20th Century Box. Do you want to do it? And I said, I'm in Sydney. And it meant, I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> I said, what do you want me to say on it? She went, no, we want you to do it. We wow. want you to front it. Now, Mike. That's <laughs> crazy. Well, I said earlier on, you know, it, 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 this actual serendipitous path and people yeah. say, oh, he's just, he rang me up and said, you want to do telly? And that's how I got into television. Then she produced the two series of that. That finished. That was going to go nowhere. I'm in the bar at the end of its tenure because I'm nothing if not clubbable. And uh, sitting with a load of people. And Janet was doing a nut. She was going crazy because under contract she had to do what they told her she was making this this terrible says i've got to go out and mix with the fucking public i hate the public <laughs> yeah, going, you know uh what is it and it was this show called the six o'clock show which was starting in a month's time january 8th 1982 and i'd left the enemy i had no idea what i was going to do next and um i said she said well, she, she, it's got to be funny stories about london i don't even know it's going to be terrible they're going to make me into restaurants and she was doing that and i said here's a story for you all the pubs around Bermondsey are closing down. They're opening up as wine bars. <laughs> and then what? I said, honestly, there's this pub called the Coaching Horses. It's now it's now open as Feathers. I said, and people go in and, I, and they sell these different coloured drinks. And the producer was sitting at the table and said, how the locals were? I said, oh, it's funny. And I said, but the old people, they don't know what to make of it. No. Two weeks later, he rings up. I said, that story, I floated it and everyone loves it. Do you want to do it? That was the very first six o'clock show, the very first one. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And I was on that for six years. So there you are. Yes, I know. There you are. I've never had a CV. I didn't have an agent for the first eight years I was in no. telly. Um, <laughs> But all of that, I think, comes from Newport Court 1972, where I just, as near as a bohemian lifestyle as I could manage, uh, I would bring home these extraordinary records by, not most of them not very good, but you're all now worth thousands. Because they sold so few. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and they are antiques. Mm. And, and as you know, they sell for thousands. Yeah. Uh, a group called Leafhound, which I don't, I don't even remember them, five, six, seven thousand pounds. Yeah. It's so me old men would bring home albums and I would take them over Petticoat Lane. Two trains that took to get to Petticoat Lane, Surrey Docks, which I can't call Surrey Keys, Surrey Docks to Whitechapel, Whitechapel to Allgate East. Um, I'm 11, you know, most of a Sunday morning out, I'd go, uh, <laughs> big old pile of records in a bag, and, and the stall holders got to know me. What you got this week, boy, you know? Where'd you get these? I said, my dad's in the docks. They didn't want, okay, got it. All right, no problem. <laughs> And uh, I used to say, to keep after money, they'd give me like uh, 50 pence, maybe a pound each for them. They'd sell up one pound 50. Uh, and I used to go home with another bag of records. And my old man said, you guys, I fucking don't understand you. You can come back with more records and I'll send you help with. But as long as he got his whack, he didn't care. Anyway, he's bringing home these records. And everything's good. I can look around now and think, what me up at the docks? Oh, CBS, so Santana albums, Leonard Cohen albums, uh, uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears. I remember that coming out of the docks, Decker albums. all of, And those are the big labels. One day he comes on, uh, he's got this box of 25 records by a group called The Human Beast, right? Exactly. So you shook your head, I shake my head. Yeah. The Human Beast. Um, <laughs> and they wanted to be, they are almost like the uh, Brian Pern TV series, but the Human Beast track by The Human Beast was all for the first side. Uh-huh. And it used to be, <laughs> and then this voice would go, The Human Beast has shed its second skin, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and even I knew it was no good. And it became a, a byword amongst my mates, The Human Beast. It was just a human beast anytime it wasn't any good. Anyway, I took these over the lane and they said, what's this? And I said, human beast. Who are they? I said, I, I don't know. Well, um, just give us two of that, you know. And uh, So uh, they wouldn't take it. And so I brought about 
15 of them home out of a box of 25. Yeah. And I put them under my bed. And uh, next week when I went back, I said, I ain't selling, take that back. Which was so, so in the end, I only shifted about five human beasts. One day, where my flats were in Debenham Road, the other side literally used to be a bomb site. On, on the other side of Debenham Road, literally on a bomb site. And uh, uh, we was over there, as you did, hanging around on bomb sites, making fires, throwing things into it to see if they blew up, like light bulbs and batteries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and my mate Tom had an air gun, a Winchester replica air gun. And we used to, you know, put up pages out of Fiesta or whatever we found, or, you know, tin cans or whatever, and fire the old slugs at it. Bang, you know. One way, I said, I know what I got. So I went upstairs under the bed. There's the 20 copies of the human beast. Yep, I did. I brought them back. <laughs> I propped it up against the corrugated, well, actually asbestos corrugated uh, yes. wall at one side. <laughs> get back 25 paces, see if we could get the nearest to the hole in the middle. Very That's what good. we did. Great game. Eventually, like clay pigeon, we were throwing them up in the air. <laughs> no, Mr. So-and-so. The last copy on eBay of the human beast sold for two thousand seven hundred pounds. <laughs> this is I don't. This is not apocryphal. This is an absolutely true story. And if you read any articles about it, it's now a much prized, obscure British psych album from nineteen seventy. <gasps> not many copies out there. I know why. <laughs> we shot the hell out of a button, and, and I don't tell that as a, for instance, no, that is a true story. You created that shortage. Exactly. Yes. Me and me mates will get together, and still, because you know that that shorthand never leaves you. Mm. We'll be in a pub, some terrible record comes on, they'll go, oh, yeah, human beast, that's a shorthand for a terrible record. When I tell them that story, they go, was that the human beast? That was the human beast on Decker. Uh, so I'm going to ask for the um, essence of uh, Newport Court, mm-hmm. 1972, because the world was never as young for me as that. That no. was independence as well. I used to go up there on my own. Lovely. And and, and it became it became all this useless beauty you see me surrounded by now. <laughs> so I've never really sold records, not much, uh, when we went to America once, but this has been... Um, yeah, this is the, a life's work. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so Newport Court will be number three. Yeah, I'm not surprised you cherish it. Yeah. I should put a slight whiff of Chinese food floating there, down. Yeah, but do, do you know what? It, I never went to that end of it. Um, I, uh, I'd never, I never walked up Gerrard Street at all. Uh, it was only when somebody said, oh, the one by Chinatown. <laughs> I was like, is it? Because once you went past halfway, it was just hairdressers and stuff. It's only a short street. All the record shops are next to each other. Bang, 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 bang. I don't know what they all made. They're living out of the record companies because even the staff of the record companies will come down, offload stuff there. And there was every available space was taken up with boxes of records. But that lost London, which is lost now because it's half a century ago now, incredible, half a century ago. I took my grandkids to London the other week. We went to the London Transport Museum and then they said, where should we eat? I said, I know exactly the place. And I led them off to a little alleyway and I went down it mm-hmm. and the place had gone. Of course. Just one of those proper caffs, you know, where you go in and you can eat anything. I went out Saturday before last with my daughter. She bought us tickets for me birthday to see a show and then I, I got COVID and we couldn't go. And now it's, it's rearranged mm. for the other Sunday. We went this great restaurant in uh, brand new. I'd, I'd never heard of it, but it's a very good uh, Italian-American restaurant in, in Common Garden. And uh, even the Santua, you know, this piano, I said it was an actual market with lorries. I said, you, nobody come around if it was too industrial, you know, yeah. all of that. And uh, we went there, and then we had an hour before the, the matinee was going. The matinee started, and I said, "I'm going to want to show you something. I don't know if if you know about it, right?" So we started cutting through from Covent Garden over St Martin's Lane and round them little back streets. But there's actual houses, still two up, two down houses round between there, yeah. and odd little shops that sell buttons and things. And she said, "I didn't know you could." I said, "It's higgledy piggledy." I said, "I'm so happy it's here, but let's see if this is still here." And you cross, eventually come out into um, Shaftesbury Avenue, and you cross over, and there's that cinema. 
And then there's a little tiny road up the side of there that leads to uh, Holborn Church. A little tiny, up the road. You got the side of that. He said, where are we going? And I said, <laughs> I, was still, I was on a wild goose chase or the old man's imagining it. And as you go up there, there is a walled garden, a park, basically. Right. Because there's council flats around the back of that, and they're mm-hmm. still there. They were built in the 70s. And they maintain this little tiny park. Mm. And you walk in there past almost like Mary Poppins' wrought iron gates, and there's a sign saying, please don't pick the fruit and vegetables. They're ours, and we cultivate them for distribution amongst the... And it is like this magic secret garden ah. set between Shaftesbury Avenue and Oxford Street. And it's there. And my daughter, it was great because she went, oh, my God, she knows the West End Walsh. <laughs> went, I'm never going to find this again. It's not going to be here. I said, but it's always been here. Yeah. And it's one of the few things that I, I retain. I mean, I knew the West End like the back of my hand by the age of 13. Mm-hmm. I knew every single bit of it, mainly because I'd trawl around the record shops. When Virgin Records used to be up above Shelley's shoe shop on Oxford Street, that was Virgin Records. Yeah. I met Richard Branson years later, and we was on a plane once, believe it or not, when Chris Evans bought Virgin Radio from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was on a British Airways plane, and he had to be smuggled on it. Chris said, I'll do the deal with you, but I'm flying. We were going off to New York to do John Cleese. That's another story. We missed him. We got drunk and missed him. <clears throat> we're doing it for TFI Friday. Anyway, we did. We did. That was, oh, no, there's another part three. Anyway, so, um, and the deal to sell Virgin Radio was done on a British Airways plane with deep incognito Richard Branson on board. Oh, how fantastic. Uh, because that had to be done that day. And this, this, this Dutch consortium were going to buy it, but he liked Chris. He said, I'd rather sell it to a maverick. But Chris said, I'm getting on a plane in a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, well, uh, 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 is it one of mine? He said, no. I said, I used to buy bootlegs from you. He went, we never sold bootlegs. I said, Richard, <laughs> when, when you was above, uh, he said, we didn't. I, I'll put mine up. I wouldn't have had that. I, 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 I never. I said, Richard, you were notorious at Virgin Records up the stairs and through the shoe shop. He's big curtain at the back with a, a cardboard sign saying Virgin Records upstairs. <laughs> and you went upstairs and just like these places I've been describing, it was hippies shrumped out on beanbags, yeah. you know, and it was Virgin Records. Uh, they did mainly mail order, but they had this little shop there. And I said, on the wall, H-Bomb, Deep Purple, Wooden Nickel, Crosby, Stills and Nash, all these illegal albums. He said, well, not while I was there. And I looked at him and I believed him. I think when he went, mm-hmm. I don't think he served me on the counter much, the staff took them all down again. But that's where I used to buy my bootlegs ah. at, at Virgin. So that is the extent of how well, at 13, I knew the, uh, the, the, the CD-ish underbelly mm-hmm. of, of the West End. Yeah. And all of that is, is summed up with being Newport Court 1972. Fantastic. Do you know, when you said Newport Court, right at the beginning, I've just finished filming playing a judge in the courtroom at Newport. Oh, Newport Court, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about that? There's another little cosmic connection in, yeah, in a Newport Court. In the Newport how, how Court. Did you, how, did you, how did you... Oh, guilty, guilty. Did, was he? Sent him down, yeah. yeah. I, I, I did, um, oh, well, but I'll start that story. We're literally going to read it part three. And I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, we should let these people get on with their lives. Let's exactly. move on to number four. So you've got one more thing you want to keep and one you'd like to put in there because you want to forget it. Okay, anyone need the loo? Well, this is your chance. And if you don't need to spend a penny, but you can spare one, you can join our ACAST Plus subscription, where you'll get all episodes ad-free. Coming soon. In the meantime, we'll be back straight after these adverts. Right. Oh, no, someone's in there. Come on, I'm bursting. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for waiting. Right, we've all washed our hands, obviously, so let's return to Danny Baker and find out his final choices for the time capsule. Number four, the fourth thing that I would like in my time capsule to be uh, something that I would cherish and uh, want to be remembered by is doing nothing. <laughs> I did think about this. I thought, what do I like more than anything? As I said to you yesterday, you know, I hope with great respect, an hour before we recorded this, I thought, oh, Oh, I do think we might get down. Well, why do I when why do I agree to this? I'm mm. sitting here, as I say, you know, idly doing nothing, which is I just the, the song, busy doing nothing, working the whole day through, trying to find lots of things not to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even though people say, Oh, come on, 45 years you've, you know, been in public guy, you've been working all the time. So I was on all four channels in one night during the, <laughs> that regrettable period until the public got sick of the sight of me when I was on everything. Um, and by the way, this is the house that Daz built. Uh-huh. But, we, uh, but if I'm absolutely honest, what gives me more pleasure doing nothing? I suspect I've spent a lifetime doing that. I've never attended any meeting about anything I've ever done before, during or after a show. Never. You know, I've never made connections within the BBC. Mm-hmm. I'm very clubbable, as you know, and I've got a lot of friends kind of in showbiz, but we're self-contained here. And it was always very eccentric. But at the heart of it was a total lack of commitment and of work ethic bordering on inertia, always. <laughs> and the thing that suits that best is your show business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, don't put it the other way, it, 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 not the acting side of it, the television and presenting side of it. Mm-hmm. Radio comes very easy to me, so that was a boon. Telly's no sweat at all. I don't do anything particularly uh, memorable. But doing 40 years of that, I would constitute doing nothing, even if that sounds like a bit smug. But the idea of doing nothing, and I'm going to lunch after this uh, with my old producer for Five Live I haven't seen for a while, whose life I think I changed a little bit. If Claire's listening, I hope you don't mind me saying, I think she would agree. She was very corporate. She had her own production company with, you know, working, selling to the BBC. Mm -hmm. Work was everything to her. And in the five years we worked together, suddenly she became quite indolent. And, <laughs> and when I when I got fired, she left as well, closed her company, left, and uh, spent the rest of the time going around the world. And I get postcards uh, from all over the world, all over, literally. She said, look where I am, look where I am. Oh, brilliant. Well, if you're responsible for that, then you've done well. And a month ago, she sent a photo and a, a chap who's Swiss, uh, um, she met uh, quite late on. They, uh, she said, look where I am today. And I was at Marlebone Registry Office and she looked marvellous and has just got married. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, me and Claire are very, very, uh, I hope, uh, I was at 
at least partially responsible for uh, this wonderful third act, even though she's not as old as me. I love the idea of this third act. You're really pulling me in at the moment. No, of course you should. The first act is, you know, the rock and roll years, if you like, to the enemy. Then I went into telly and kicked my legs up and all of that for, you know, 30 years. Now the same, and when... Let's face it, you know, we're written in the mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. The kids are all grown up and gone. We're living this rattling around this big old drum. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll sell this. And uh, and this record collection's going. So I've got a pretty good cushion for the whole third act, and that's fine. When I go, I want people to say about me what they say about, you know, anyone who's done well. Well, he sure went owing a lot of people money. That's all I want him to say. <laughs> <laughs> he went owing uh, people a lot of money. No, I just, uh, <laughs> I want this third act to be absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Literally going off into the sunset, literally doing that, mm-hmm. which is all we intend to do, me and Wim, uh, because we're quite happy that once the front door shut, I've got nothing to do. And as I said, I'm meeting Claire in an hour in the West End, the most agreeable restaurant I always use. But I'll tell you the truth. I woke up this morning. I thought, okay, I've got to be doing part two. Oh, I'm going to go to lunch. And I'm sod it. That's going to be lovely. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be lovely. Yeah. But the idea of having a diary, which I've never had, <laughs> an agenda, or as I say, even a CV, frightens the life out of me. I'm very good for saying, which is probably why we haven't done this sooner. You know, uh, Dan, um, do you want to do this? So and so, when is it? Say this will be in March. When is it? It's in August. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. It's August. But as we know, things don't roll around. No. They leap right out at you. Yeah. And the next thing you know, saying, you haven't forgotten about that uh, corporate on Monday. Oh, oh, can you get us out of it? Can you get, oh, come on, there's a lot. Can you get us out of it? And so, I, again, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. But I've always been like that. There's a great thing in Seinfeld when my soulmate George says at one time, he's talking to Jerry, and Jerry says, um, I've got to go out because I've got, I've got to meet him with a guy. And he went, you got to meet him with somebody? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm meeting. He's got to talk about something. He goes, uh, will he show up? He went, well, I hope he'll show up. Went, no, that's not what I think. I've never had a meeting or an appointment where I wanted the other person to show up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am totally at home with that. Friends. <laughs> I'm, what, I'm you're totally right. Like I do wake up every day. I do have a diary. I look at it and I'm annoyed if there are things in it. Are things to do. Yeah. You know, is there any sweeter phone call in the world then when you're getting ready to go out and do something, everyone goes, Dan, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to cancel today. I'm so sorry. And, I'll, and I'll make all the, oh, you're joking. No, and really, my feet are doing a dance. My snoop. Yeah, we're going to have to schedule this. Like, I'm so sorry. They're ringing. They're apologizing. And even sweeter is to say, they are still going to pay you for today. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Bob Hoskins story in the, in the Untouchable. You know that when he was, he was signed up to do the Untouchable, 1.6 million, I think he was getting. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, he had the three months blocked out and that. And then they called him up two months before he was going to start and said, Bob, you're sitting down. What? Um, look, Robert De Niro was originally cast for this, but he couldn't do it. But now he can. <laughs> and he said, oh, oh, all right. And he was looking forward to it, Brian De Palma and all yeah. that. He was looking forward to it. And he thought, oh, 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 so where does that leave me? They said, well, um, they really want to go with De Niro. It doesn't affect, they're still going to pay you. And he said, and I thought... <laughs> He got 1.6 for not doing it. That's the work we all want. That's the career you want. That's the career you want. We don't want want you to do this, but we're going to pay you. We'll give you 1.6 million if you don't show up. (laughs) (laughs) I've done pretty well over the last four decades and plus, but that is still the sweetest. So my fourth thing would be if this is a box with four boxes within it the fourth mm-hmm. one you open there's nothing in it or there would be there'd be a diary for that year with absolutely no entries <laughs> in it completely empty that to me is the sweetest thing when people you know people say to us uh, what are you working on at the moment i'll say oh nothing I go, well i suppose in your game it's like i said no 
You don't understand. Did you hear the laughter in my voice as I said that? <laughs> nothing at Absolutely all. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'm you know, completely uh, free. I'm, yeah. I've got no deadlines. I'm not. I've, I've written everything from the BAFTAs to the, to the comedy awards before mm. they descended into the mire. And as you know, that's a, that's the, the phone goes, and she's got three projects going on. Hi, Danny. Uh, sorry, how are we doing on that? Is it? Can you give us anything by the end of the day? I thought like someone's choking me. Yeah. Absolutely choking me. Um, so nothing is would be the ideal. For number four there. Fantastic. I hope that, that makes sense to people without sounding maniacal. It does. It's going to be an empty box. I'd, years ago, I'd almost, well, this is a prime example of me doing nothing, is that I have ideas and then do nothing about it. So uh, well, <laughs> that, that keeps me happy. You know, I've had a good idea. I could have done it. I am tremendous with ideas. I've always mm. been, and we'll tell you, I will come up with the greatest concepts. I'm very good in meetings. If, if like, they call me to their, I don't want a meeting, but if they say, Dan, we were just talking about this and I can always say, I'll tell you what's better. And they said, would you write that down for us? Mm-hmm. And I never do. <laughs> <laughs> it comes very easy because it would require some commitment. You would have liked my idea I had years ago, which was a diary for very unimportant people. It was already filled in. <laughs> that is wonderful, Mike. That's a great idea. I've had mine um, uh, purloined uh, plenty of times and plenty of times. I stood on the again on the radio when I used to ring up and read your teenage diary. Yeah. Suddenly, Radio Four had a series on my teenage diary. Mm. So okay, I take that. I used to do on the radio. Tell us what you've never done. Because my friend Danny Kelly's never worn a pair of jeans in his life. And uh, people ring up and say, I've never been to a concert. We sent them to a concert. Some said I've never used a vending machine. This sort of thing. <laughs> you say, Wow. Now on Radio Four. I've never seen Star Wars. I think that's into his 10th series mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Where did these wacky young Where researchers get, get their, their ideas, ideas from? Equally. Would I have done anything with that beyond knocking it out on the radio? No. Did they ever really want to make monkeys dressed as famous people plus <laughs> fairground music? No, they didn't. Look how that ended for me. Yes. Uh, but anyway, but there's you and I both joined at the hip in that. And mm. Maybe we'll get together after this and thrash out an idea. <laughs> there's a certain pride, I think, in having an idea and just going, well, I had that idea and I'll put it out into the world. If anybody wants to do something about it, off you go. Because I can't be asked. The best script, if I had, forgive me here, any kind of lost project, I was approached by, uh, and at one time, I was just about the highest paid. I, I was always, always, because my agent ring, I'd say, dude, I, said, I really don't want to. But it's, honestly, it's easy. I said, I really don't want to. And you know what that's like in the business? Yeah. They've come back, they've gone up, they've upped it to this. And, they've, <laughs> and honestly, only because, I, like I said, I wanted to do nothing. Mm. I really don't want to do it. Honestly, it'd take you two weeks. And uh, I said, well, won't, will it? They drag on, but they come back. And then they come back and say, well, I've got to do this. Yeah. Well, I was approached by um, the Henson Company, the Muppet people, mm. to do a thing, um, uh, a new game show. They were reviving it. They couldn't call it the Muppet Show because they'd sold that name to Disney. Right. I met with them. They gave me the sketches of all of, of, about 40 new Muppets. And they pushed them over the desk. And these are the photographs. They were being made in Chicago. They say, you can look at them, see what personality. It's all on you. You can write this thing. It's a game show. And we want you to uh, have fun with it. It was a blank sheet of paper. Wow. So I went home and I looked at these things. And I liked the idea of a host who's ended up on this show. So I wrote it in the most, I wrote it in the voice of Alec Guinness. <laughs> uh, and the opening of it, the, I've run through as quick as possible. It was taking place like the old Muppets used to be in this theatre, which hosts this game show. And somehow this great old man of the theatre or broadcast has ended up fronting this madhouse. Yeah. And I remember the opening was um, applause. Thank you, thank you. Um, I shall now try to live up to that most fulsome of encomiums. That was the opening line of it, right? <laughs> thank you, thank you, one and all. I shall now try to live up to them that most fulsome of encomium. And that's how he spoke. And I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written, but it turned into an absolute nightmare. And probably I didn't put enough effort into it. And eventually 
uh, got let go from that. They, they paid us. It wasn't Bob Hoskins' money, but they paid us. <laughs> um, and it eventually came to the screen, and it was called That Puppet Show, That Puppet Game Show. It went out. Right. The only thing that remained, one of the characters was called Mency, which is the name of my youngest daughter. Mm. But it was a shame because it was a really, it would have been a really terrific show. And as it came out, it went straight down the toilet, didn't even touch the sides, no. uh, which I took no pleasure in, Mike. No, no, <laughs> no, you'd been paid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been paid, and also it looked like I might have been right. But uh, that, of all the things I've ever done, that was, and uh, the a second series of Cradle of Grey, which circumstance, I'm afraid, it overtook us mm. uh, now that now we've gone. But that was, that's the number one job. Number one was that, number two, the jungle. Yeah. The seeing your teenage life recreated for television. <laughs> uh, it was the happiest show to be on. Ah, I don't know, nobody who was on that show, doesn't say that was the best job they had. Yeah. It was wonderful. With the great Jeff Pope riding alongside me, and I've known Jeff since the 6 o'clock show days. He joined as a researcher from the Hayes Gazette. Mm. So we've known each other all that time, you know. That was the number one job of my career, absolutely, without doubt. We can, you know, look at the other end of it for as long as you like, but let's look <laughs> up, not down. Uh, uh, but that, that incredible ride filming that in Manchester, and recreating Bermondsey 1973. Ah, fantastic, yeah. That, that's all. Oh, what a, what a gig. If I'd have known you then, we had a judge in it. Oh, no. Yeah, and I know how good your judges are. With a slight twinkle. With a slight twinkle. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have come over to me saying, hey, I've only got two lines in there. Wouldn't it be better if I summed up at I length? Think, I think I can make something of this, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I met William Mervyn when he was on Crown Court, and Bill told me. <laughs> you seem to know me well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I'm very good friends with Gary Warren, who played Peter in The Railway Children, little boy. Mm. In, uh, and there's someone who walked away from the business. Tried to get him back for credit or great. I said, Gary, he, was living, he lives in New York now, but he was living in, uh, in, in England at the time and we're very, very close. He used to listen to the show I used to do on BBC London. He's a massive music fan and he used to call in Gary from um, Neesden. Right. He used to call in and, and one week he just was uh, talking about something or other and he said, because I was an actor, you know, before, and he said, but I, and I said, you was an actor? And I knew him, Gary, and I said, what was you in? He went, Oh, oh, don't. I said, well, come on, anything we might know. He went, <laughs> I was in the railway, children. I said, what was you? You're not Gary Warren. He went, yeah, yeah. And I said, wow. man, a cat weasel and all that. Yeah. But by 15, he just walked away from it. Mm. He loaded, but he walked away from it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, and when I found out, you know, you wear your CV quite lightly, but if, uh, if I was in the railway, children, or cat weasel, I'd walk around with billboards, with a sandwich <laughs> board saying, yes, it's me from the railway, yes. children. Right, shall we go on to the, what we'll get rid of? Let's go on to the one thing you want to put in there you want to forget about. Well, last night, we were all sitting outside, me and the kids, and the subject got on to mean people, people who were tight with money. And then the number one sin in our family was, and believe me, as I say, I mentioned, I've spent every time thinking, oh, it's all right for you, but it wasn't always all right. I used to get cabs when I was like 14. And people say, well, how do you have that money? Well, working at a record shop, I was, I'm my father's son, and you know... <laughs> If somebody gave us 12 quid for a bunch of records, I'd ring up 10. But it's not all based on crumb. I've always been, and everyone in our family has always been, my old man said, no, mean bastard, mean. And when I was at the NME, I found out, forgive me, most middle-class people won't get around in and things mm -hmm. like that. Or this whole idea of planning for a rainy day and never, ever since I can remember, has not been like that. My old man was always pay up and look big. You're always, as I've mentioned before, you'll always be able to forage around. And we was hearing last night about someone who um just just a tight, tight people, you know. Oh, is it my oh sorry, um, what did you want if you sit there? Mm. Nothing, nothing irks me more mm, than no. people who are close to a pound note. Close to a pound. I know a couple in this game, close to a pound the note. The detailed working out of a restaurant bill. 
It drives me mad. And the number of times I've just said, I'll get this. Well, it, me and you both, brother. Mm. And, that's, and anyone will tell you in this game, even literally, you know, I've, I've gone way over the overdraft. <laughs> because if you're sitting there, it's, I've only got two or three other people in my life who you have to fight to pay a bill. It's not to look like the big time Charlie at the end or anything like that. It's just that. It's how you do it. Everyone should have plenty of everything mm -hmm. if you're in your company. And my nephew liked that phrase so much, he had it tattooed on his leg. <laughs> plenty of everything. And again, it's a difficult concept to understand, but unless uh, you are, a, a, I suppose, what is, you know, naturally generous. But I don't say that in order to be... I, everyone I knew growing up was like that. Yeah. You couldn't survive. When I joined the enemy, it was a great shock to find out that mainly people who come from a few kids would sit at the table and let you buy round art, and I would. Mm -hmm. I said, don't, don't buy them. I said, I know they're like that, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. When you're going in the flats, you go to people's houses, the first thing they say, you want a cup of tea, you want some toast? You want, do you want, a, do you want, you want a meal? Or, or if somebody had uh, had it off on the horses, my mates, they'd walk into a pub and slap it on the counter and say, right, let's knock that out. You know, <laughs> it was 30 quid, which you've got your life. Yeah. And you would. You'd knock it out. There's all, And in my life, there's always been one big bowl of it. The life is a tough old cat and you skin it any way you can. And people who are even cautious with it, I don't understand. I mean, when I was first offered a job on the six o'clock show uh, after 20th Century Box, when I was sitting at a, that, that table there and then got that job on the six o'clock show, I said, do you want to front this story? And it went over big. And that show, we didn't know it was going to be such a hit, mm. but it ran eight years. They offered me 750 quid a show. I had no agent, remember, right? I had to sit down with Greg Dyke, who was the editor of the show, <laughs> yeah. and John Bird, executive, and I'm like a football player signing up for a club, he said, Danny, would love you to join the team properly. And I said, all right, because they'd already given us 500, this one in the old Kent Road. <laughs> and that had gone. This is only six days later. That had gone. <laughs> and I sat down, and they said, um, you ain't got an agent, have you? I said, I'm doing Greg's voice. Now. I said, no. We went, well, you've got five of that, but you know, we want to sign you up for uh, at least a year. They said, uh, that's 750. I said, uh, and I'm thinking, what, every week? This is 1982. <laughs> is it, no, I, yeah. I, I know it's vulgar because the British don't like talking about figures. I'll tell you. I, <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I said, oh, if you know, if we continue like that, we'll talk again. And I thought, hang on, hang on, we'll talk again. Uh, and I, had to, I said, <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm going to retire. Said, <laughs> I know. But I knocked that out. Like was no <laughs> we, we used to shop at Heels and Liberty and... Mm -hmm. um, I met a bloke the other, how about this? I was on the tour in um, Northampton and the Reverend Richard Coles, the great Reverend Richard Coles said he wanted to come and see us. So Richard came and he turned up with this other fellow who's now the, um, not the Grand Moff Tarkin, but whatever the head of a university is, the, uh, <laughs> yes. the rector of, no, the rector of so-and-so and -so of, of the <laughs> university of, up that way, right? And he said, uh, this is, and there was this fellow there in obviously well-heeled and very well-spoken. He said, very much enjoyed it, Danny. Thank you. I said, well, thank you very much indeed, your rectorship or whatever it was, you know. <laughs> uh, and Richard said, you two have met before. And I said, have we? And he went, you, you were, you, I was just a, a, a student on my first job. He said, but I said, well, how? I said, well, on the six o'clock show. I went, no, no. He said, you used to live high up in a high-rise flats. And when we were first together, when I was first on the six o'clock show, still on the council, mm -hmm. uh, we lived on the 19th floor of a block called Major House, which is uh, just Hawkston Road, yeah. Raymouth Road. You know Raymouth Road? That Major House is that big tower block. Yes, I know it, yeah. It's free, yeah. So we lived in there, lovely flats, absolutely lovely flats. You walked in, down into the front room, big windows looking out over the West End. You turned, went down some more stairs to the bedrooms, big windows looking out over the, the River Thames. Yeah. West End one on 19th That's floor, amazing. you can imagine. <laughs> As you can probably imagine, these days they're being renovated for private use. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so... um. He said, you used to live on the top list. I said, yeah. 
He went, you bought a three-piece suite from Liberties, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, I delivered that. Me and my friend, we, we'd never delivered to Bermondsey before. And when we <laughs> went down that turning and looked at the block, I said, well, one of us is going to have to stay in the van because of the other stuff. But they did. They got, they got it in the lift and they brought it all the way up. My Uncle George lived in that block. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful Swedish design. Mm. People used to complain about them. Oh, these flats, you know, dude. They're beautiful flats. Amazing, yeah. Big? A huge flat. I mean, it wasn't the fucking, sorry, it wasn't the flats that pissed in the lifts, thank you very <laughs> no. much, the people. But I bet that he was delighted the lifts were working if you were on the 19th floor. And, oh, in that block particularly, as you know, people would press all the buttons and they got out, so you'd stop, oh, that rotten bastard's pressed all the buttons, you'd stop at every floor. <laughs> and and the other thing that they would do is, and here's a word you ain't heard for ages, flob on the buttons. Oh. And so you'd, oh, he slobbed on the He's flubbed on the 19. And you'd have to get a bit of paper and just push the 19 with that. Uh, and, and that little terrible little window in the lift that give no light. They, they're, they're reinforced with wire. Yeah. And you're supposed to be able to see through there. <laughs> My mate once, he, he got a job as a, a milkman. He was the other bloke on the float. And on about his third day, they were delivering to Major House. It's this 24-story tower block in, in Bermondsey, everyone. And, of course, the, the old sweat said to him, nah. I'll help you out with the crates. There's your list of what you've got to deliver where, right? He said, I'll wait in advance and I want next, you know, not on the floats and yeah. I want next. So people thought, oh no, you had about like 15 crates. So the lift come, <laughs> only one working, of course, I've waited ages. And the bloke said to me, he said, now look, I'll give you a tip here. Get a matchstick. He said, and stick it in the open door button and it holds it. So you don't have to keep, when you get out, if you've done it, wait again for the lift and take all the, yeah. what do you reckon happened? Of course, Pete said, okay, all right, thank you. <laughs> he got up to about the seventh floor, didn't he? Stuck the thing in there. He's got, took one crate out and he's got oh, two red top here, one so-and-so there. And he's, uh, <laughs> the matchstick has fallen out. He spent the next half hour running up and down the stairs trying to catch up with his own, his own milk. By the time he found it, everyone had helped himself, even at that time. Uh, he lost half of his load. He just did <laughs> a matchstick fell out and up and down major house it went. Any rate, coming back to mean people, uh, and I hope uh, no judge offence to that, but I, I've, I'd like to think that the anecdotal and uh, any research you want to do on it say he's, he's nuts. Mm. Not just me, I know loads of people like it, but pe- I, I feel for people who are terrified by money. Yeah. It's the tyranny of money. My old man used to call it that. Knock it out, boy. Knock it out. You'll uh, never. Go. And when I went to Hawaii, as I did in the first, <laughs> at the end of the first series, it's a clock show. We had nothing. If you read the first book, you'll find out. And there's the actual letters from the bank manager. He was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful man. His name is Mervyn, and he was uh, a Holborn. And I never had a bank account. I'd open one so London would be pay me. They weren't going to give me cash. <laughs> and a great shock to me. And Mervyn used to live vicariously through me. He loved the fact that I was always going off on holidays or pipeline outlandish stuff and never had any money in account and didn't respond to the usual letters. I didn't. So he started writing me the most extraordinary letters in character. He would write (laughs) as a mafia boss. He would write as Queen Elizabeth. I I, I take it you are back from the Indies. I wonder if you might look at... And he used to write these letters. He used to let me get away with murder. Right? (laughs) One he wrote, he wrote a letter from Barclays Bank, edged in black, right? He edged the whole letter in black and he addressed it to Wendy. Dear Wendy, I know I'm probably the last person you want to hear from at the moment, but um, I couldn't let this pass because Danny wasn't just a client. He was a very good friend of mine and we had many, many laughs. <laughs> Anything you need during this difficult period, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I know uh, we're down the list, but I'm looking at the account and it's, please don't even think about it until it's uh, <laughs> my, my greatest condolences. P.S. I'm addressing you like this because no money has gone in for two months and I'm assuming he's dead. <laughs> 
and people thought I was making this up. Oh, and I put the, I put the let some of the letters in the book. And when I did the one show to promote saying about five years ago, mm-hmm. they found him and they had retired. Now he's much older. And he came out, Mervin, and he <sighs> said, I used to sit in an office all day dealing with like a bank manager. He said, like the old time bank managers, you know. Mm. He said, and it was a parade of misery. And I said, I'll get letters from, you know, Paris. And all this. <laughs> I just sent you saying, you know, unless we're paid by Tuesday, we're going to have to take leave. <laughs> I did. I used to take them. And he just thought, after a while, I just thought, I'd, I used to get myself a sandwich and I'd make these letters up. And he said, it became a really fun part of my uh, week. How lovely. And what are the chances of getting a bloke like that? No. But, I mean, you say that, but you seem to attract that sort of world around you. Well, so I, I think so. if you I behave so. a certain way, that world will, will create itself. Well, I hope so. And I hope it don't seem just, you know, annoyingly no, no, ebullient. No. My dad was famous for being tight. Was he? Everybody said he was really tight. <laughs> and so I know exactly what you mean. He would go to any length not to buy a round, but it's because it was funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. If he caught a moth, he'd put it in his wallet. Oh, what did he do? And say, so open I go, hang on, what's this doing in there? So he played the game. But when he oh. died, a great horde of uh, women from streets around Tooley Street came to his funeral. Oh. And they all said, oh, Harry used to come to me. I used to drop in on a Wednesday afternoon and always made sure I was all right. He, he was basically looking after oh. a great bunch of old women oh. who'd known his mum. And he never mentioned it. That's beautiful. That's lovely. Yeah, oh my, that's lovely. absolutely beautiful. Yeah. In '83, even though I've been been paying his fortune, right? Mm. Um, we had nothing. But I, I told Mervyn I was going to Hawaii, and we did. We went to Hawaii. Mother right? <laughs> said, "When we're going to Hawaii?" She went, "When?" I said, "Don't worry." And, and I, I said to Mervyn, "Look, look, Mervyn, you know I've got another series coming up. Why that film script I wrote? Hollywood's begging for us. We are I said, "Don't." It, it's rather like I don't know if you know Woodhouse's Eucridge. I didn't know it at the time, but I was like, "Oh, Eucridge. Why you're coming around here with piffling stories about thousands of pounds? Why? But the, the prospects are huge, old horse. I'm an old pulp, I'm all, and we did. And I always." So, you know what, if we come back and they say we don't want you with this series, I'm no further down the road I was when I left school, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm going to be 88 and on my deathbed and say, really wish me and went hadn't gone to Hawaii in 1983. <laughs> 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 they can't and knock it out. Knock it. I'm Viv, Viv Nicholson. Spend, spend, spend. Wonderful. And for people who don't understand, it's a terrific way to live. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. Can sometimes make you gasp. And even to this, I've never had a, a savings account, and I'm overdrawn as I speak to you now. Mm-hmm. Promise you. Absolute promise you. Uh, but does it worry us? Not, not in the slightest. Uh, it's, it's a touch of Macabre as well. Something will turn up. Yeah. <laughs> My record collection for a start. Yeah. But anyway, so, so the thing I would put into a box to banish from the world, uh, from my own experience of the world, mm-hmm. are mean people. That's in there, but it's locked. It's, it's locked. It's lo- exactly. And they will come and visit me with chains around me. <laughs> they don't live as I live. Well, if you're doing Dickens, then you're definitely not Ebenezer, but you remind me so much of Mrs. Fizzywig. Oh, Fizzywig. Mrs. Oh. Fizzywig. There's a line about her that I always <laughs> think, what a way to be, what a way to live. It says she entered the room, one huge substantial smile. There you go. Well, that's bless you for that. You know, I'd like to think it was entirely down to philosophy and not dumb luck. Yeah. But that's exactly how it's been. But I'm, as I said right at the top of this, I've been stuck with this ever since we moved to it. And I thought, you moved here because I was born? What oh? <laughs> <laughs> Hand me those seven league boots. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so that's how it's been and that's how it remains. Fantastic. Danny, have a fantastic lunch. Well, my, thank you very much for asking me to do this. And thank you, everyone, who, if you've stuck through this, I think, three hours. <laughs> or something but uh yes i'm now going to have lunch and uh, just watch me pick up that tab watch me pick up the bill absolutely the last time i went 
uh, a very good friend of mine is one of the best script writers in Britain. And um, we'd always said we we're going to meet up after COVID. So I met up with Simon and uh, we went to the same place where I'm going now. And we sat down in there at one o'clock. And this is the kind of place it is as well. We stood up again a quarter to nine. Oh, gorgeous. We, we went through lunch, we went through the afternoon, and we went through dinner. Yes. Uh, we were going to pack it in about four o'clock, but I then said, you know what I enjoy? Nobody else does. But just for, to finish, I do like a grappa. <laughs> he called me sister and laced daisies into my hair and said, then grappa it is. Uh, I don't think this is going to be quite as long, but it might be. You never know. It's, it's called Vasco and Piero's Pavilion. I'm going to go. It's, it's full of people who once put on splendid productions with Binky Beaumont. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah. And they don't they don't hurry you up at all. I shall take you there and we'll both fight to pay the bill. I'll do that. I would love to do that. No, yeah. you've got no chance. I, uh, if I'm with someone I know is going to do that, I do the, uh, where are the toilets here? And get hold of the motion. <laughs> take my card now. Anyway, uh, sorry, everyone. That, that'll do us. Danny, I'll leave you in peace. Bye. God bless you, mate. How lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for everyone. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Danny Baker. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. You can also help us by subscribing to this podcast and by rating or reviewing it. Do follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, where we're happy to chat and answer questions. You can listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify, whenever you want. This was a cast-off production for the podcast provider Acast. It was skillfully produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, thank you for staying with us through these two marathon episodes. Then again, who wouldn't enjoy a marathon? I was watching the London Marathon yesterday, and you know what? I saw a man run by dressed as a chicken. Mm. And then a couple of seconds later, I saw someone run by dressed as an egg. I thought, hmm, this will be interesting. Till next time, bye. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.